Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everyone, Aaron Noonan here. Welcome again to another episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Repco. This is another of our special editions. It is from the archives and it's with thanks to the team at the National Library of Australia who've opened up access to an amazing piece of motorsport audio. Now this interview with Harry Firth was recorded in 2008. Of course, the Fox himself passed away in 2014 and this is the first of a two-part chat on the pod. On this part, he talks about his time growing up in Gippsland. Harry also talks about his interest in all things mechanical and where that came from, his time as a dispatch rider and mechanic in the Army during World War II, and how all of those experiences shaped the legend that became Harry Firth. He talks about his early years in motorsport, and this part one ends with the first running of the great race, the Armstrong 500, at Phillip Island in 1960. Part two next week covers Holden, Ford, Bathurst, Brock, and much, much more. Now, you won't hear my voice in this, obviously, but the voice you will hear is Rob Willis, who sat down to record this interview with Harry in 2008. And again, a special thank you to the team at the National Library of Australia for giving us access to this great piece of audio. So here we go, from the archives. Harry Firth on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. So I grew up on the snow of that real banjo Patterson uh, attitude, and I had five aunts and four uncles and the local minister all telling me what to do and being a single-minded child in those days I wasn't going to do any of that I was going to do what I wished to do but you were told you were a child um, just do as we say you don't know what you're talking about I disagreed I thought well I did (laughs) and I used to read all these books I read every book which you could possibly get hold of, and uh, in, in, in later years, uh, I used to study the uh, the imported books, the motor and the auto car and speed and how to obtain it and things like that. Anything which you could read, I read. The stage girl, mm. we had no money. Uh, we we were reasonable according to everyone else, but we had no money. Anything you wanted, my, my parents and that the, the the combine, they built their own houses, and there was a row of them up on Boundary Road or Bust, and um, we of course would carry a bit of wood or that, <laughs> uh, whatever, and uh, you you went to school bare feet. Uh, I was top of the state school, went up up to six grades. And I th- co thing was a chap called Norman Wakefield, who became a famous botanist. Um, he was pretty vague. He was that vague that in later years he got up the tree with a chainsaw and cut off the limb he was standing on and he mised himself. He felt he dead. <laughs> but he found dinosaur tracks and all sorts of things. Uh, so uh, this is the sort of can you, can thing you which, mm. which we dealt then all the normal people because I being 
the type of person I might never think the, the bigger boys picked on me uh, my dad would never let me fight anyone he wouldn't no way no I know you come and you, you come and talk to me so you know, you no way we allowed to fight any other people uh, and um, it was just you know very hard existence uh, and uh, you know life was you sort of helped yourself. Uh, we had a half acre block, home built house. Uh, we had about 14 fruit trees, about 30 chooks, a cow. Uh, we had an old bloke lived in the backyard called Old Jacob with a long white beard. And he had a little slab hut uh, with a, uh, an open out bag and a dirt floor. And he never came down to the house don't ask for his history, I don't know. My mum used to send him, we used to take him up his dinner and that. And uh, he was one of these, obviously, a remittance pensioner sort of thing. And no pensioners in those days, but that sort of person. And they looked up to him in their kindness of their heart. My mum was a very Christian lady and they worked in the Methodist Church and uh, they worked for the CWA and you name it. And another thing is that and the outlining church people, anyone who was having a child, which was fairly often in those days, and that, they would come into our place for the last two weeks before they went to the hospital. So I knew all the facts of life, no trouble. <laughs> and uh, it, that's an idea of what, how what, hard life what? was. We grew all our own vegetables, we lived in a chook, we, we had our own milk, we made our own butter churns. We, the only thing uh, the family actually bought was bread and some meat. We fished at the weekend, we would go off and fish, and down the back of Markle's farm there was a, a little old river ran through there. So in the middle of the jungle there, which it was then, well, they had a wire thing across the creek and a great big wire cage and the fish would swim out of that and each weekend they would go down and clean it out so we'd have fish for the week. <laughs> you understand? Yeah, exactly. Now, to, to, to solve or authenticate the fish, we would be fishing up the top end of this, you know, thing and we'd catch the cage and one. That explained that we went fishing and we can't caught all these fishes. <laughs> good, good run. What about Dad, mate? What's... Well, uh, Dad was... I have a picture of him standing outside of the Herbert's grocery shop in the main street of Albus. Uh, and he worked in the grocery shop and he was a, a local uh, dignity of the church and uh, the slightly upper part of the town. In other words, he wasn't a peasant. Uh, he was uh, reasonably educated um, and had very strict, uh, with my mum, very strict Christian moral teachings and beliefs. So, don't you dare fight anyone. Don't you dare do this. Don't you dare do that. No dancing. Oh, no. Oh, no. no they, there wasn't very much then in those days. And uh, look after yourself and do it. But he did teach us how to play sport. Um, he was quite a good football player. But he didn't play with the local white team. He played with the Aboriginal team from Newmarket, like tyres and all that. 
Yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, he had a slightly different outlook on life. And he used to say, early on in the pen, don't give yourself any airs and graces. All people are equal in this world, you know. Um, just make your way in life. Um, respect other people. All that sort of thing. Yeah, it was drilled into you from the start. So that philosophy went on to young Harry? Well, that philosophy eventually went went on to Brock, you see, ah, who was my pupil. pupil yes. Yes, uh, that was all so drilled, this is the handed, drilled into him, you see, it was handed down. <laughs> He, he must have been some unusual sort of a fellow, your dad. I mean, associating with the, the, my dad, the Indigenous people my dad like Tyres. was an unusual person, yes. But what an amazing man. Uh, he, uh, they built their own houses. Uh, he made beautiful fishing rods, you know, with, with uh, spit cane and spun silk things. And, so he was quite handy too. Uh, uh, oh, they had wood lathes and yeah. things and they made, uh, at a fiddle back, they made the beautiful butts for the fishing rod, works of art, you know. Now, you get a thousand bucks each for them, <laughs> used to give them away. <laughs> I used to say, Dad, don't, don't you charge anyone for these, you know, don't they give you money for these? He said, oh, no, no, I don't do that. So this it, is it seemed right to me, you see, mm-hmm. already I had a commercial outlook. <laughs> <laughs> So this is the environment, the morals and That's things. That the moral the, environment and the, the skills. And uh, they had a, a, an old belt drive motorbike and they had a couple of other old things and that and old cars. which I, So by the time I was eight or so, I could help service the car. What sort of a, car was it, mate? Do you remember? A rugby. Rugby. Right. 1924 rugby. Now, in 1928... My uncle down the farm bought a brand new A model Ford Tourer. And his wife decided to go to Melbourne to visit the rallies. So I was still, he said, oh, Would you like to come along? I said, yeah, <laughs> the big smoke. <laughs> so we're down about sailing. He said, Oh, you can drive, can't you? Yes, of course I can. <laughs> I'm driving the Ford down the road. Stead straight for 30 miles. 70 miles an hour. Yeah, he said, you better break it down to 50. <laughs> I, I could drive because I was king of the billy carts down the street. I'd built my own billy carts and I used to have billy cart races down the street. To see, so I knew all about steering things and all that sort of thing. Um, and that, and, and uh, so I drive and it's when you get to the end of the straight days, oh, I'll take over now. Coming home, I didn't get the offer because the mistress had said to him, if he drives, we get out. Because <laughs> I'm... Flat out. You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think 28, I'm 10. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that was... So that mechanic... Get, get, get the message. Yeah, I, I had the mechanical feel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I had the mechanical feel straight away. And as I say, I used to help service the cars and the bikes and everything. Uh, by the time I got to um, next three or four years, by the time I got to 13 or so, 14, my, my father said, I don't think you're interested in school anymore, because I wasn't. Yeah, couldn't get it. Uh, he said, I've got your job in the local garage. Three and sixpence a week. So what age are you here? You're, you're 13. 
Or 14. 14, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Three and six months wait. 32, 1932. Yep. Okay. Yep, three. 32, 33. Yep. I was there a year or so, and my father got the cancer, as I know now, and he just slowly faded away. Yeah, went worse. Oh, grey, lost weight, went off his head. Yeah, he went all up his spine. And, uh, so he passed out. Now that, being at that age, is a fair blow, <laughs> you know. So we, we decided what well, we would exist. And my, my sister earned two pounds five, and by that time I earned seven and sixpence. Well, as I say, we, we had everything and we grew everything, but still my mum did a bit of washing on that. But we existed. Um, we still kept the car, but we only used it very frugally, you know, perhaps weekends or something. My mum could drive. And um, I could drive uh, very well because I used to drive the breakdown truck uh, around the back locks and uh, that's for about 18 months, you see. I used to come up the Marlow Road and go in under the bridge. I couldn't understand why at 70 miles an hour the inside two wheels would lift off the ground and then slowly go back down again. And it, it, it didn't dream on me that I'd perhaps go too fast, but I never had an accident. You understand? I was very, very skillful, evidently. And uh, that was all right. And uh, through the speed and how to obtain it, it was ported and polished and had a two-inch exhaust pipe and all sorts of things, you know, like a change gears without the clutch, all that sort of thing, you know. Can I just ask you about that first year of apprenticeship? Because this is this is something that we've got to retain the memories of those about what you tradespeople did in those days. Well, in in 1932, uh, you had to service cars, and they'd be right. Hudson Sixes. Sorry to drag you off this, but this is uh, very important. All this, all this sort of thing, you know. I could service a car by the workshop manual. Most people couldn't even bloody read it. This yeah. comes from your uh, reading. Well, my the, technical expertise was such by then that I could service a car by the workshop manual and understood every mortal thing in it because I'd studied so much, you see, and knew all that. More than the senior mechanic there. I knew more than what he did. <laughs> so, but that was, that was a very sore point with them. And uh, fortunately, the chap who ran the place, a chap called Harold Kelly, uh, they owned Preston Motors in Melbourne, which is a very big firm, and they had 32,000 shares in his wife's name. She was a Tarrant, the Tarrant Cars. Tarrant, oh, Tarrant, something like that. Anyhow, that's, that was their history. So I worked around. Now, he also, he had driven cars on the motorhome in Melbourne, the Citroën. So he was telling me about this, you see, and also gave me this insight into, into things. And in 1934, years I think, in the front door, it comes W.B. Thompson with his K3MG Magnet on his way to Phillip Island for the motor to run in the Grand Prix, which he came second in that year. And uh, I helped him change all the oils and every modern thing, and then I talked to him for an hour or so, and got quite an insight into what went on. And that, uh, and that sort of, um, 
help. Yeah, that's in the real world, you know. Thing. There is a Grand Prix car there which can run the Grand Prix, and I'm, I'm working on it, you understand? <laughs> That'll be pretty exciting for well, you. Well, it was. Yeah. Uh, and um, a year or so later, by this time, I'd acquired a motorbike. I sold a car for 17 pounds and acquired a rally motorcycle, which I rode all over the Alps and everywhere. The new road, uh, new highway, which became the road up through Sugenbogen and that, my mate was a ganger on it. Um, you know, he, they drilled the holes to blow the rocks up. Uh, so I went up there to visit him and camped out, rode my bike, rode my bike. Years later, in the London thing, I drove a rally car up that particular road at a hundred plus miles an hour. <laughs> Through driving all over the Alps and everything, when I became a thing, I won six Alpine rallies because I knew exactly where all the roads went. No trouble, I was used to that sort of thing. Uh, but that's, that's a long way down the mm. track. The, the, uh, the thing was that um, you became very self-sufficient, extremely self-sufficient, and you had to make every shilling count because you didn't have any. <laughs> yeah, so you learnt the value of money very early on in life. Uh, there's nothing that brings you down to, 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 to realistics more not having any, have it. if you don't make it, you don't eat and you don't live, you don't do anything. So, um, so yeah. that's at the basis of that side of Harry first. Uh, that was where the basis come from. The other thing that is that a lot of I've talked with a lot, of, I lo lo love talking with the early mechanics, and the thing was about making do. If you didn't have something, you would make it. Let's go back to wartime, right? In wartime, we had nothing. The t my tools were. T my civilian tools I had taken away with me. I thought, these might come in handy, so I took a little toolkit. They were my toolkit all during the war. I mean, the army gave us nothing. So the, the, the thing in the army was beg, borrow, or steal, mm. in that order. Yeah. What year did you join the army, Harry? I joined in 1939, right. the, when it was first established. Uh, I went in the signals unit, in the motorcycle dispatch rider section, because that's what I knew all about, you see. Donars? Uh, yes, yes, a and uh, that was number one dispatch rider section. And I was the fitter. I looked after all the machinery, my 24 bikes and three trucks. A and it was um, very difficult because you had to adapt to the army way of life and be doing what you're told, regardless. You know, I didn't like that very much at all because most of them were imbeciles who didn't know what they're talking about. So I survived in the army. Uh, we went off overseas. Um, we uh, went to Palestine. Uh, went to Egypt. Uh, I had, by that time, I know, I'd acquired a 32mm Browning automatic, which I had under my shoulder all the time. And you go into war, 
like you've got a little extra protection here. And um, so that was something which you always had as a extra extra safeguard. When we went to, um, we were living under the pyramids. Um, you went off to Egypt, um, through Egypt and into Libya. We were at Saloum, which is just over the border. And uh, we had nothing to fix our bikes or any mortal thing. So I decided, well, this pretty Italian bike lying around. So I went out and collected them and took the tyres and tubes and batteries and nuts and bolts and things off them. Then I decided I had no tools. So I went up to Benghazi, just fallen. I went up to the Benghazi aerodrome while it was still being bombed somewhat. A bit dicey, was And I came back with a, uh, a petrol driven generator, uh, air compressor, um, 44 gallons of uh, SOE 60 aircraft oil, uh, 8 gallons of castor oil, which the medical people talk. Uh, and sundry tools. I was fully equipped. I also had a breath of light air, the aircraft uh, machine gun and, and uh, six thousand rounds of tracer because the air raids were starting to get a little prevalent and the ME ones were to, we used to chase our boys down the road. But, you know, so it was all very difficult. <laughs> and we'd been bombed and raided a few times and we uh, said so we'd better look after ourselves <laughs> if no one else is going to. <laughs> And uh, I was into Brook, but not in the siege. We got out of it before then. But we went right up. Our run was 185 miles beyond Benghazi. Now, the line section had 50 miles of wire, so they were useless. The wireless was getting jammed by the Germans. So we were the only communications which ran. And um, we ran fairly well, you know. But that time, to supplement their bikes, we had little Canadian V860 desert buggies, all steel, or U-Butte. So we used them for the long runs. Uh, that was good. A and when you go on your run, at the end of it, if you didn't get some petrol from there, you couldn't get home. So we were all very... But uh, you know, we survived all that. So we said, Come on, pack up, you're off. Said, off to Greece. New things. I had acquired a Benelli motorcycle. Well, I had no bike. He said, oh, I better have a bike. So I got this twin AV camshaft, uh, twin cam, and that Benelli with spring heels and all that. He said, You can't take that thing and you can't take that anti aircraft gun with you to Greece. Well, no, so put in the ordnance depot. Took the three heels off the bike and put them all in the box and put in the ordnance depot. Went off to Greece, got shit shot out of us in Greece, you know. Uh, came out of there, uh, got sunk in mid ocean, blown 25 foot out of the water, jumped onto a destroyer, 20 feet, that's why my bit shit out <laughs> And that, and, uh, dumped off on Crete, uh, got out of there before it was invaded, luckily, um, then, and straight up to Syria. You know, 
pretty difficult business. Now our DRLS run from uh, in this first start in Syrian came was from Safad across the Jordan Valley, 50 degrees, to Damascus, one of them, and the other one was up, yeah, straight up the coast. Uh, cut a long story short, we uh, did fairly well in that, you know, we didn't, didn't get hurt, I didn't, and um, we survived that. Um, so we finished up then, we were living in Beirut, about 30 miles up in the Shack Mountains, where the they shelled my route from when the, all the trouble was on. We were living in the mountains there. And uh, then they said, well, we've got a job for you. So we lap, mapped Lebanon for the army. So we drove on every road in Lebanon. And, and I've got a picture of me on the Turkish border and that, you know, and uh, we would, because there were no rations, we would write on the canteen or give the order of so and so, just give it to some bog and he'd give us a couple of chickens or something. <laughs> How we survived, you understand? <laughs> you amaze me. <laughs> and we'd acquired, um, there was an aerodrome at Almas and Aleppo. Well, they had Diva 10 fighters sitting on the strip. Oh, oh, I have tools and things this. Oh, so I come back, I still have them. I had a full French artificer's kit. Taps and dies, great big spanners, little blow torches, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah, I was really equipped, but I also had a Beretta uh, light not a Breton, no, a Frenchman, uh, a light anti-aircraft gun, and again, a few thousand rounds of tracer. So I had to try this, so I'm up the road between Zolmers and Aleppo, and I'm, yeah. <laughs> and there's a wog goes past me with four donkeys in a cart, and he's, <laughs> he thought he'd be attacked, he said, oh. And then I tried to shoot some ducks off the shoulder and I finished up. I, I set the scrub on fire about two miles away because they're incendiary bullets, that, you know. However, uh, the, the, the gun came back to Australia because uh, I got dysentery and I got shoved in the hospital and all the boys went home. Uh, they took all the tools and that back to Australia and luckily my little mate took them home to his place and left them there. Now, I get discharged from the hospital after three months and um, I'm down in the reinforcement, I'm going home you see, and the, the old major comes in, um, it was a company commander, old Bill Murrow, and he said, oh what are you doing here laddie? I said, well I've been six, just oh he said, I'm, I'm stopping, I'm forming a unit to, um, to service the entire Australian troops in the Middle East, no matter where they are, it'll be DRLS, Air Carrier, yeah, you name it. He said, would you like to run the, the dispatch rider section and that? And I said, oh, well, if I can pick my people, yeah, he said, oh, no trouble at it. Oh, I think. To cut a long story short, um, I'll get there and I'll get the requisitions in store. So I requisitioned for 11 dispatch rider. Lo and behold, up comes the box with the spring heels in it for number one. There's only an extra digit on the thing, they didn't care. <laughs> so, oh, 
So in the Proveyard next door in Gaza, I lived in Gaza for 11 months. I know all about Gaza and the Middle East. And every, we went to everything, every church, what was there. We, in the Safad, we let, slept in the church of Nativity. We used to walk in out of the, the carpenter shop where Jesus used to work, bathe in the Dead Sea, speak to Solomon, Gomorrah, you name it. Everything to do with the Middle East and, and biblical things and all about it went through. Uh, which is something my mum was highly interested in, yeah. But uh, I, I finished up, uh, got my old Norton, my first Norton, was derelict in the Provost Yard. I said, oh, you can have that, bloody wreck, get rid of it. So I grabbed this. I bolted the Spring Hills on the Norton, painted a camouflage yellow, it was unusual. Uh, did a few things to the engine to make it go faster than that. I think it was known as Springer, and it was well known throughout the Middle East. This bloke had this special bike. And uh, after the, eventually the campaign was over, the you know, Alamein and all that sort of thing all happened, thing, they had a great big parade um, near Gaza, uh, and that of the entire non-deaf and everyone and that and uh, they were talking about all this and great big address by Arsenal or someone I don't know I can't remember who one of the generals and that they said oh well you, you're going home with you people and that was a bit of a blow to me because they decided after that all was over they were going to have a Middle Eastern Dispatch Riders Trials Championship now the chap I had to beat was a chap called George Aideen who rode in the Scottish Six Days team pre-war with the 350 AJS, which they had, that was their issue. So I thought, oh, I reckon I can have him with my, my bike, you see. So I used to practice out the back of, in the waddies at Gaza, Gaza on my own. Um, and they came in and said, right up, pack your things, you're off. But, 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 no buts, home. So we just packed the gear and went. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. We're back in Australia, uh, we're going back to civil life. Now, I went away, meek and mild little boy. Yeah. I had reason of knowledge, but I really wasn't. I came back a very different person. I ran the dispatch rider section. I had done reconnaissance of entire countries. I had... Um, done things like we didn't have a water truck so I went and pulled in the Jap one and fixed it all up and made ourselves a water truck. Uh, you didn't have any tools, you just went out collected them all. All sorts of things, yeah. Um, and you knew exactly how to deal with anything which came up. Be it living, cooking, dealing with hierarchy, uh, just existing, acquiring knowledge. What it is, you were fairly expert at it. 
and uh, then you tried to go back to civilian life. Well, going back to a country garage after all that was a really bit... How you going? I had acquired in wartime, uh, I traded in my motorcycle, and I had bought a P-type MG, mm. which I had used and then put it away in the shed at home. So I get the MG out of the shed and stall up, and that I damaged it a bit through my ignorance. So I fixed all that up and everything. I'm working at this back at this country garage room. After a while, I got sick of that, so I tried to buy it. Of course, they weren't going to sell it to me with it. Uh, so I said, well, I just said to my mum, I can't stand it here. I'm sorry, I've got to go. Now, I'm only going to go, first of all, to Bensdale and work there for a little while because this girl I've been sort of going out with, and that was a mistake. I should never, ever have got married, but however, the done thing wasn't that you got married. But I stood three months at Bensdale. I thought, I can't stand it here, you know. So what, what was it you were looking for, Harry? Were you just wanted to get away? Did you, or you just... I, I wanted to be able to do my own thing in life. I wanted to be able to create things, to, to get into motorsport and, you know, do more. That, that's, that's where I'm coming from. I run from, a local yeah. hill climb at Benstown. Yeah. I've got pictures of it actually with my bike and my car. So, so, so that motorsport... I'd was... made a trailer yeah. uh, put all, to put all my things in that. And I just went, went off to Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, so motorsport was a pretty important part oh, of life. Oh, well, it was station. then. And uh, 40, I lived, 46, 47? That was um, 47. 47. 47. I, I, I lived with my little mate down there uh, for a little while from ex the army. And then uh, I went to live with some people. Uh, I changed garages a couple of times. I, uh, I lived in Sydney Road. Uh, I got my brother, who was way off the beam, you know, he'd been in the militia, he had no idea of life, he was, he had no trade or nothing, I said, you come down here. I got him an apprentice thing as a spray painter. I, he lived with me out in Sydney Road, Brunswick, and uh, every Friday night, you come home, yeah, I think you would go over to Macintosh's record shop. You would buy two jazz records. So that's where my jazz collection has come from, and um, and the jazz side of that. And um, I used to go to the. the uh, I used to play jazz in Kilda at the um, the Galleon Coffee Lounge and that, and Collingwood Town Hall and things. So Graham Bell and all those people, and you all them and that and uh, that was another side of it but I went to live over in Armadale and went to work at a sports car place there uh, called Hollands they ran all the known championship sports cars and things and uh, so I got a job there no trouble and because uh, I had an MJ right away and uh, I lived with the Campbells. Now, Keith Campbell went on to become 350 world champion. Before he lived away, I used to help him with his bikes and everything. And that's so, yeah, you've got an input in all the bike side of it and that. 
and a chap called uh, Squadron Leader, he was uh, DFC and Bar and everything, Tony Gaze, he came and he bought two Altus and an HOD sports car from England. And uh, of course, being a junior, we weren't allowed to look after those. The first AGP after the war was 1948 at Point Cook. And uh, I was given the job with my mate Mick of doing Frank Pratt's BMW, which was a lesser car. Right. We couldn't get in touch. We could, we could look after that. Yeah. They would do the Alphas and the, uh, and the Altus and that. And uh, I also decided I would race my MG in the support race. Now they have in the safe uh, a whole set of papers from Robin Jackson of Brooklyn's, everything to do to an MG to make it go faster. And that. I said, look, yeah, can I borrow? No, the customer you can't have those. Stuff you. So that night, when we went back, I just opened the safe, copied the papers and put them back. <laughs> Oh, it's a democratic world, big borrower still. <laughs> Getting back to that lesson. Back, back, back to the lesson. Back to the same guess. Yeah. So, uh, and I'd also um, was friendly with uh, Phil Irving, OBE, who, uh, through the motorcycle world, he created the Vincent Black Shadow and all sorts of things, you know. And I was mating with him because he used to come home and uh, in my place I had a fairly workshop on that and uh, I bought a house by then and uh, used my tools. So I would pick his brains as to how you do this and how you do that because he'd made things like brake drums and cylinders and all made complete cars and engine things you know he made a, uh, a special reconnaissance uh, thing for the for the raft and something he did all sorts of things you know very talented man and he designed the Repco Bradman eventually. Mm. But this was very early days, you see. He worked for Raleigh Pistons. So he made me some special pistons from MGs with bumps on them, which raised the compression. Yeah. And uh, I'd also, and then I did all the things which they said in Robin Jackson, which meant that the valve timing was absolutely dead centre and dead correct with the way they did it. It was a specific way to do it all, you see. To cut a long story short, my MG would do close to 100 miles an hour. And I was walking in the um, support race, um, and uh, I looked back over my shoulder to see where the other cars were, and didn't see the corner, and spun it, trying to get around the corner. So, so I came fifth, but that wasn't bad. I, yeah, that was trying. So but, was that, that's your first actual. That was my first, first real race. race. Okay. Yeah, I'd done some small ones, but that was my first real race. Right. And they said, oh. Alf Barrett, who was uh, Barrett Brothers and Burston, he drove the Alpha and they, uh, he owned Hollands. He said, he spoke, he, how are you getting on? Yeah, are, are you coping or you know, anything you want to know? And that very precise. And he said, oh, well, I've no trouble in that, that bloke with each and that bloke with that high tail thing there, I'll pass. Oh, that's Alton HR. I said, yes, well, I've no trouble to pass him around here and that. <laughs> There's a young bloke, Patterson, there with a new with Bill Patterson. Uh, he gave me a lot of trouble, you know, can't cope with him. Oh, well, 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 just keep with him. Cut a long story short, our BMW, I did the complete car and Mick did the engine. And we both tuned it. Won the race. Walked it in. 
So you at that stage you were looking at things like suspension and setup. I and looked at everything. Yeah, yeah. Now, for my car, my MG, the tyres, reading different things than that, it was obvious that a softer tyre, slightly softer rubber, and you didn't want any tread, not too little tread, but they more want solid bands of rubber so the tread wouldn't move about, it would stop central. So I went up to the retreaters to show me all your tread patterns. So that one there, with a band of rubber this side and that side, and a little bit of tread in the middle. You got that one for this size tyre? Yeah. Just look at the rubber. This one. He said, oh, it'll wear out a bit. No, don't you worry about it. Can you retread, please? That? Yeah. Not too sick of tread. Yeah. Yeah, no problem. Put the joint on this way. So, yeah, because it was a slotted joint, so that when you put the tire on the run this way, it's not going to tend to lift off. I said, no, don't worry about it. Just do it. I gave him a buff. He says it. Good. What it boiled down to, I was racing on virtual slick slicks. Now, I didn't know quite know why and everything, but my car, I've got a picture of it, in a four four wheel drift around the back of the course at 90 odd miles an hour, you know. I mean, and with all the, the hand built stuff in the car and the rest of the king, my car was about the fastest MG in the in the business around the tracks, you know. And that. Just a quick question there too. I mean, these days we've got full harness, we've we've got roll cages, we've got everything. What was Harry first sitting up in his MG with? At that stage, nothing. When we got a bit further down the track, and uh, we were doing TCs, yeah. I left Holland's because I couldn't agree with them, you know, and that. And I'd rebuilt cars there, and the Alta, they pushed it in a heap, you know, it kept breaking down. So I said to the guys, I said, do you mind if I ever go at this in my night time, in my spare time? You know, I said to the boss, he said, I'll oh, do what you like with the thing, you know, it's no bloody good and that. And I said, yeah, well, we you get some more Norton pistons, I'd re- the sports car I'd rebuilt, Get some more Norton pistons, which will drop the compression ratio by one, uh, and they're more solid than that. Uh, get a set of those for it. We honed the bores to give it more clearance, and we got the sump and we baffled it all, and that so the oil wouldn't surge in it and, and put more oil in the engine. And, that. and so we'd lower the compression, gave it proper clearance, fixed up the oil. And uh, something else I did, I forget just what. Borrowed the wheels off the Alpha, which were much higher to gear it up. And I said to him, I had to drive it to Fisherman's Bend. No one helped me. Uh, now I'm driving a racing car down through the normal traffic, you understand? <laughs> so we'll get down there, get some yobs to push it to start. Yeah, no one else, none asked me, but didn't want to know. I said to Gay, I said, now, I'm going to keep the revs to 5,000. Don't try and rev it up to 6.5 like you've been doing before. I'm going to keep it to 5. Just sit behind Davison, and on the second last corner, when you come round, you come round and round the straight down to the finishing line, just come round, you know, make sure you intro, just give it full boost, just for that particular thing. I said, and you'll knock him off down to the finish line. 
which he did, won the race. Well, I couldn't get near it. They're all patting on the back, and I knew you'd do it, Tony, and all this sort of bush. And I said, I can't believe this, you know. This typical pack of bastards, you know. They're telling one minute the car's no good, and there's a sheep and everything else. The next minute you're all, you know, live and learn. <laughs> However, <laughs> I fixed his bloody car. And I also rebuilt another one, which was there, and did some other thing. I thought, I'm out of this, you know. Yeah. I can't stand these Still things. want to be on your own? Yes. So I went home to work at my garage. And uh, I had every MG in Melbourne. They were used to be, the driver would be four, five or six of them. Yeah. On the Sunday, all these sporting people would come to talk to me about their cars, and they'd have their Jaguars and their Rollers and, <laughs> that, you know, XK120s all lined up in front of my place. <laughs> However, the locals organised a petition about everything else, not the running unregistered. No, no, see, smart. I had registered a business with the local council. I've got a council certificate here. However, the council then came up to see what was going on. and said, oh, uh, you'll have a visit, visit from the health person about things. I said, what are you talking about? What health? Well, all this noise. No, I don't. I don't work after uh, half past ten at night. You know, not allowed to. Mm. Uh, oh, well, they say. I said, I don't care what they say. Uh, I do not work after those hours. Now, I thought there's nothing but trouble here. I've got to get a place to work somehow. And I finished up over at the mountain garage as a chap, a bikey, Grandpappy Sinclair, who I knew. Uh, Grandpappy had got this garage and he was running the front, selling the petrol. So I decided, I arranged to rent the workshop off him. And uh, we were going to sell Hillman cars as well as a sideline, because he knew people, and people wanted cars, so a few extra bucks. And that and uh, it was just something which you actually had been building up to for a fair while. I bought an air compressor from, uh, oh, I can't speak where, but you know, there's a bum lot, you know, this. And finished up, made it vertical and put the thing along so it was very compact and worked very well. So I already had the air compressor and I had the. Uh, the porting tools and everything else because old Phil Irving used to come, I was the only one who had porting tools so he could make black lightnings out of ordinary um, Vincent's and uh, the reigning motorcycle champ was Kenny Kavanagh. Kenny used to drive him, bring him in the sidecar outfit and fill him in the drive so Kenny would sit around and talk to us, you know, while we're doing the thing and we'd talk about all sorts of things with bikes and cars and things and that, you know, so it was a very convenient And we were working until two o'clock each morning then, not making any noise, just work. If you didn't start a car, there was no noise, it was all right. You've got all these people coming to you to do the things to the to the MGs and, and their cars and things like and that. The Jaguars. And, Jaguars ja and the Jaguars. Jaguars and the Jaguars. Jaguars and Healy's right Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you love what you're doing, but you've got to get bloody paid for it. Were you? 
I got taken. Now by this time, I am driving cars. Russell Lane said, he'd been overseas, he said, I've ordered a San Ventolba rally car. He said, a Super 90. He said, I want you to run it in the BP rally. That's the biggest rally. Mm. Sun rally it was then. They were going to have it that year. I said, oh, that'd be nice, Russell. Yeah, he said, he said you know, he said, I can't drive it. He said, you, you can. Well, so we won. Letter from Sir William Roots. Thank us very much. First victory. They'd run it in Sterling Mossad in Monte Carlo, but he didn't get anywhere. We won. And a couple of other things, you see. And uh, other people had said, yeah, will you drive this for them? And a motor company did some work for didn't get paid, didn't get any credit. And I said, hang on, you know, this is not the thing. So I said to myself then, no bastard in this world gets anything unless he pays for it. I don't care who he is or what he is. And if there's any doubt at all, if I tr when they come to get a job, I'll just talk to them for a few minutes I'll make up my mind, A, whether he's trustworthy, whether he's going to pay me and whether I'm going to do the job for him or not, whether he's going to give me trouble or not. If he's not, I'm going to be too busy or something. You know, I'm just not going to... I'm only going to do things which, uh, are, you know, fairly dumb. Why, why, or else? And they would come along and say, oh, this is, no, that's not exactly what you want. What you want to do, your sort of thing, you should have this and this and this. If the bloke would say, no, no, I'll go and he said, well, you go off and get that other done somewhere else, but don't come back and expect me to fix it up for you, because I can't. Understand? Mm -hmm. So that worked extremely well. Right. And uh, I got paid. Now, I said, again, I said, probably by this time, I was writing an article or two in a few of the magazines. And I said, the silver cup's all very nice, but if it hasn't got any money, it's no good to you. It's no good to me because I've got to live. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I made it very well known that uh, a spade was a spade and a quid was a quid. And if you wanted me to work, you had to pay. Well, I knew where they stood, Harry. Well, that's, that's, that's well, what it's all about. Well, I, I was, by then, the most successful sports car person and rally driver in the business. And I not only that, I prepared all the cars. And as necessary, I would alter all the cars. So I had uh, standard cars. First of all, I had Roots Group, which was a carry-on from Russell. Now, Russell, unfortunately... Um, had a big bust up at work, went home, had an asthma attack, had a heart attack and died. Bang. And three months later, his old man was so upset and everything with all of that, he passed out as well. So that side, he was just buying me a Formula 2 Cooper Climax to race. <laughs> so that was a little bit of a setback, you understand? Just a bit. However, you know, we coped with that and... Uh, we built, at that time, uh, the supercharged MG Special. 
which is a picture of it over there in the wall. What sort of supercharges were you using? Well, that was the fastest MG thing. We set a national Australian quarter mile record with it against Lukic and Whitefoot and Jones and everyone else, Stillwell, all neck, Bristols and everything else. I beat them. Great shock to them. Yeah. And again, when we beat them, one of the things we did was we got a worn out four ply Olympic tyre busted off and hand cut a tread in it which we thought would be the quickest thing off the line. It had specific sights and things in it, you know. Hand cut it with a hand tool. Took about two days. I did a bit and said, right, you do all this. And uh, we'd made for the MG six inch by by, uh, 15 rims. Unheard of. Rims were four inch, three and a half inch, we had six inch. And um, other things, you know. We, we'd bought a supercharger, uh, which was, uh, the car cost me 200 pounds as a wreck. I had to straighten it all out and everything and remake it all. So we we uh, cut the chassis like that and brought it out and that. So instead of sitting on the chassis, you'd sit down on the under tray that much lower and things like this and everything was all welded together and then the body frame and everything was all welded onto that a complete monarchy three years before Colin Chapman did it and um, the blower was uh, a bigger blower than the engine so as the engine revs went up the boost came up accordingly so if you just want to go fast you just rev it up another 500 rev and you get another five pounds of boost if you wanted to so we never used to rev it over five unless it was required and uh, to cut a long story short, we killed them at the sprints. But to test the car in the main garage, sit in the doorway, rev it to full chat in five and second, drop the clutch, spin the wheels all the way down. We were trying to make the suspension so that both wheels would, would drive, one wouldn't spin. So we made a special radius rod on one side which held, that, held it down. And that's so we got that right, and we had four stub exhaust pipes pointing towards the bank, and that's right. And after the first run, the bank ready to come storming in. They count all their coins, shillings and two shillings and everything, in pyramids of a hundred pounds. They had all these pyramids. When we did this, all the pyramids fell together. <laughs> Chaos in the bank. <laughs> Harry does it again. <laughs> so we, uh, well, he just got put up with it because we're still going to test it. Don't put them together again. This this will go on for a week. So don't don't put your your, your piles together again until next week. We won't be doing it after that. Oh. These all these things that you're putting together to make yourself the best. Now you talked earlier about reading and putting well, things. Well, in we, that. we had. Is it just something in built in you too that you know that you uh, you've got to put a radius rod there? I knew that this was that. the best way to do things. Yes, and that was the best way, and that was the best MG, and this was the best way to do an MG, and this was the way you put on superchargers. This is the way you did that. This is the way you did wheels and tires. This is the way you did that. We remade every mortal thing. So. In the light car club, who are all very up themselves, yeah, public school boys and everything, yeah. I was considered, you know, who is this chappy? Oh, what school did he go to? Uh, well, 
actually, I heard it's actually, I went to Orbost Elementary High School, if you know where Orbost is. <laughs> they didn't. It's on the Snow River. It, <laughs> And all this sort of thing, you know, you're in trouble with these bastards all the time. But we worked in the real world, not their make-believe world. Quid was a quid. If you did something, either it worked or did it didn't work that way, you change it the way it did till it did work. So every mortal thing which we did, the cars won. And they won. Hill climbs, rallies, motor races, every mortal thing. Then uh, we started running for the Stanton Motor Company. Now the, the managing director was Keith Horner. He used to lend me his personal car to run in rallies and race because he said, there's no paperwork involved. He said, and it's my car. He said, and it's not going to affect anyone. He said, and if there's anything happened to it, he said, they'll just fix it up tomorrow. He said, there's no, no problems with it. He said, you know, it stops all the, yeah, the rubbish. He didn't say bullshit, he was too much of a gift. So I did things for him, and uh, then the TR2s come out, and uh, a mate of mine had bought one, a Bali. So again, I'm telling him what to do, and his mum got me down there, they just gone to Red Road, and she said, just look after and make sure he's not going to get hurt or anything and make sure that everything's fixed up as all the cars and all that. She said, well, just fix it up. That. And uh, he said, I don't want, them, don't want them to get into any trouble with any of this. That was all right. Just like Papa Lane, you know. Mm -hmm. And, that. and uh, his sister was married to Cordner, who was captain of the Melbourne Football Club. Again. Yeah, in the upper crust of the whole business. So uh, this was, that was all right. We, um, you know, with the triumph, Keith Horner got out some two special kits of bits, race tyres and disc brakes and everything. He gave one to Doug Whiteford for his triumph and one to us. Uh, but we had, uh, I had upended the triumphs because we put the race tyres on it and at Fisherman's Bend, on the fastest part of the circuit was rotting about. We drifted across. They'd resurfaced one big square with non-skid bitchmen, and the rest was ordinary bitchmen. So we went across, drifting the car, you see, mm -hmm. sort of, yeah, 30 degrees. Mm -hmm. And when it struck the non-skid, the tyres bit on the non-skid, he just went, Phew! me, <laughs> on the deck. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> not good, 100 miles an hour, skating down the bits of it, stopping yourself with the hands, so your hands are wearing out, isn't it? <laughs> and, however, we survived that. Um, but uh, we decided we would fix the times, so we cut it, shortened it, put the engine down in the chassis and everything, had the sports car body in, which we um, adapted onto it and opened the guards out and made it a full aerodynamic thing. Now the aerodynamics I did was such that it was, had the long slapping nose and everything which was just starting to be current then. And, but I added to that, instead of going round underneath the car like they did then, I bought it straight down flat and I had a full ground effects under tray forwards of the length of the car, you see, really. Mm. And that's before everyone. Oh, before everyone else well, did I mean, it. Yes. You, you, now, 
Yeah. Well, I was Colin also to the, yeah, about right. to put on a, a cam back, which was, you know, the, 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 the fin on the back. Yep. The, the, the like on the XU1s yes. on the... Yes, yeah. yes. But I hadn't had time to do that. We took a drive at Park. And I was running it. And the Italian team would come. And I go down the paddock and here's Betoffi and John Dara, who's driving the Moss. Two mechanics and they're all looking in my car. Yeah, the yapping Ryan Italian. I said, "Oh, could help you." Oh, you? It's my car. Yeah. Oh, yeah, this is. Oh, new, very, very good. You know, my Bella. This was the. Uh, I said, oh, try, try. Yes. I said, well, it's not finished. You've got to have the cam back. I said, oh, I know it's the cam here. Oh, really? Then, oh, oh. He offered me a job. They said, this, this, bo- this body is much better than our cars we've got here. You know, much more efficient, you know. Oh, oh, rap. So I, I declined the job. <laughs> I, I suppose it was perhaps because I had so much on my plate and I was paying for a house and uh, everything was working very well that I thought why walk away from a known thing Mm. to walk into something which is unknown in a foreign country you know and they're obviously going to use you up for as much as they can and then tell you to bugger off. Uh, not going to be in this so I didn't uh, but it it meant that you were internationally recognised because we'd also uh, won uh, other things as well, big rallies and things and uh, we'd been involved with um, yeah, different cars and that and we made a Vanguard Sportsman. All we did was adapt to the TRT engine well, the same on, thing. onto the Vanguard, yeah. very simple. Yes, yes, same thing. So a few other things and that. And uh, they sold a few of those, you know, but they didn't go on with it because they weren't prepared to promote it properly. But that was, that was a start. Uh, I made two special cars for the last of the, of the Grand Prix for the sports car thing. I made the Code Vauxhall which finished up, beat the 300S Maserati, which Whiteford had bought. It beat it well, with the Repco engine in it. Uh, it was really something. Yeah? And uh, we'd also uh, uh, really evolved the Triumph by then. It was a very good car, but it wasn't quite in the same street. The Vauxhall had a lot more power than it, you see. So the Vauxhall would do about 145 miles an hour and the, and the Triumph would do about 130, which used to do on the public highway quite often. I used to drive the Triumph to work. <laughs> but I had nothing else, but no money, so it's a job. And, uh, but then we, we did, then we were getting up to the 60s. Mm. Um, I started, the, the Porsche people came uh-huh. They said, you know, would, would you like to run the Porsche for us while the hill climbs and things? And they oh, yeah, no problem. You, you've got no qualms about going from a conventional, say, four-cylinder uh, TR2 Vanguard engine up to something... To a Porsche. Uh, to, to Porsche. Well, well, yeah. By that time, I had a contract with Mobile uh, 
when I went to a hill climb, they would pay me 15 pounds to win the class and 15 pounds to break the class record. So if I took five cars, I would stand to win 125 pounds for the weekend. The basic wage was seven. Mm. All right, very simple sum. Now, I was working at that time, you talk the money, uh, I would work from seven o'clock in the morning till two o'clock the next morning, every day, regardless, either compete or work. And in my workbooks, which I have, the, the worst week I had, I made um, 45 pounds. In the best week, I made 89 pounds 10 a week. Basic wage of seven pounds. So I'm, now I'm, I bought some specialized equipment, porting equipment and other things and that, and um, really sort of, you know, started to get somewhere. And uh, from the, uh, uh, that came the Porsche thing, where I ran the Porsche, and I won a lot of things. They then added a convertible, which would run in another class, so I would win both those classes. I had made an MG Holden, which came fifth, I think, in the Australian GP for a bloke, uh, and uh, against all the well-known cars and that, and uh, we'd done other things. In other words, we'd made a lot of things and uh, we'd made specific cars and that. And uh, I'd uh, also uh, ran a, an Austin Healy Sprite. Now they had 110 of them, they couldn't sell them. So they said, oh, if we give you one, you compete with it, which I did, I altered it, won a lot of things with it. They sold all the cars, so they took the car back. I didn't think that was quite cricket. <laughs> They might have at least given it to me, however. Uh, it was a very worthy exercise, which they paid for. Each time I ran it, I would get, I would just make the record, you see, so I'd get, I would get 30 quid from that car for that weekend. Um, or a motor race would be similar. Uh, they, they then uh, took that back, but they gave me the Ava Gardner car, which she ran on the beach. People are going to look in the seat, oh, is this Ava Gardner's car? So they nothing for me. <laughs> However, I picked it up and I won the uh, standing quarter mile at Fisherman's Bend with it. And then they took it back too. Uh, just remember this. Uh, next time I want something. <laughs> and at the same time, uh, for Regis Motors, they had some Volvos there and they said, oh, I said, do you want to run a race at Sandown? They said, yeah, well, give us one of these Volvos. So I said, you'll win the handicap. So I ran the scratch race and got a time, got a decent handicap, and then walked over the handicap race and gave it to him back. All things like this, you see, again, I get from uh, Mobile 40, 40 pounds for that besides the prize money and things and what they paid me to do the job and everything. So again, you get, so in other words, you're starting to get some money. It came up that um, I finished up, I got a letter from three Porsche and a Porsche plaque, which is over there. Uh, and it's men tank and mid sport if there's something, my thanks for your sporting uh, achievements. Very uh, Porsche. Very few of those in the world. And I also used to get a Christmas card and used to talk to a Husky Van Hanstein, who was the Porsche manager. And uh, the Porsche, which as, as I did it, Dan Gurney came out for the. Uh, 
Ballarat races and that with his Formula One BRM. He also drove for Porsche. And he, he, says, he came over and he said, your Porsche, he said, you come out there in a full four-wheel lift. He said, you can't four-wheel lift a Porsche. I said, but yours does. I said, yes. I said, Mr. Hamilton, will to give you a drive. He said, no. He said, I want you to tell me what you've done. He said, oh, I've got it. So I wrote it all down, this and this and this. And this. you've got to make the back steer in. And said, yeah, I'm going straight back to the factory. They're going to fix my bloody Porsche back there. So from that came the Porsche plaque and everything, you know, and a job if I wanted it. <laughs> yeah, because they were notorious for... for yes, I know, but we, we fixed it. You fixed it? We fixed it, yes, no problem. So, uh, we, we ran the tour and the last thing we did, we ran them at the international race at Humuia where Lukey and uh, Sir Jack and them were out there and uh, yeah, we cut, had the first four seconds, the third and the fifth for the, for the meeting, which was pretty good really. Um, uh, so and that was the end of the Porsches because uh, they took them back. They think that they're <laughs> getting a bit too, you know. Thing and I gave them a bill, a bill for three grand and that and demanded that he pay it because the idea was that, that they paid and they were selling Porsches right left and centre, you know. It was only fair they should pay me. He knew I had the contract with Mobile as well, you see, but I said, they nothing to do with it. I said, you, you know, all, you pay. So they paid and that was right, but he took the cars back. I didn't care. I was by that time I was an official Porsche service station, so I did quite a few Porsches. And a chap called John Ewell brought out a special, all aluminium Super 90 Porsche yeah. to race, a special racing one. I beat him with the standard steel one, <laughs> which meant he wasn't very happy because he paid all this money. <laughs> Still, that didn't matter. So the Porsche bit ceased. And I'd, I'd looked at the Ford and um, I'd uh, done, you know, a couple of things for the first Armstrong, it was 1960, yes. and uh, Bob Jane was running a, um, a Falcon. Now, we did a certain amount to it, and also the thing with Philip Island is that not knowing anything about racing stock standard car and everything, the obvious thing to do is go down and do 500 miles with it and see what broke. So I did 500 miles in my Singer, the Falcon, the Triumph Herald and the Vanguard. 500 miles, well, right. a few things did break. When the front wheel passes you going down the straight, that's not too good. <laughs> So, but we learnt from that that there was a whole different way of going out Fiddle Island and you could put your foot on it with the Falcon when you came onto the, came across the top to go round on the main straight and you could take it off in top gear when you got round to wreck the corner right down to the end round the spot and everything because each corner would just slow you enough that the car would be, you know, not tipping over but pretty close to it but you'd get around, still in top gear. Whereas the others would be changing it down again and go around two seconds slower, and that course, that part of the course alone. So uh, we were winning the race until they upended that particular car, and, and ours broke a couple of rockets. Yeah. I think. Yeah, it was 1960. Water chat there, the Fox in fine form. Harry Firth recorded back in 2008. 
with thanks to the National Library of Australia, some great archive audio there that we've been able to unearth and bring to you here on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Repco. Part two drops next week with topics including Ford, Holden, Bathurst and Brock. Plenty for you to tune in for. Don't miss that one. It will be great when it drops. That's why you should subscribe to the pod so you get the notifications. Leave us a review too. We haven't seen too many lately. Tell us what you're liking about the pod. We love to hear from our listeners. If you're thinking about Father's Day, Christmas, presents, we can help. Go to bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. Bunch of books, bunch of new stuff coming out, bunch of recent stuff, some discounted stock as well. Jump on there and grab a gift. And don't forget, sign up to our newsletter via the v8sleuth.com.au website. You'll get all the latest and greatest in our uh, email during the week in terms of pointing you to some of the stories on our website. You can follow us on social too, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the regular places to find us. We are pretty active there. Anyway, that's me done. Part one of Harry Firth is in the can. Part two comes up next week. Hope you've enjoyed this episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. Until next week, we'll chat to you soon. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.